0: There. I'm Dr. Gabe Lowe, and welcome to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. This is a show that is less interested in answering life's difficult questions and more interested in the process of wrestling with them. This podcast is a forum to celebrate the messiness that makes us human. It is a place to invite the unanswerable questions, because often it is precisely these types of questions that push us to dig deeper, to think harder, and to refine our approach to life. So, if you get to the end of the episode and you still have lots of questions, then I've done my job. I invite you on The Pursuit of No Answers. My guest today is the Evelyn and Frank Freed Professor for the Integration of Psychology and Theology at the Fuller Graduate School of Psychology Fuller Seminary. Ooh. I first heard him at a mental health seminar speaking on the topic of extended cognition, the topic of his recently released book, and a major part of our conversation today. He holds degrees in theology and psychology and has advanced training in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And along with maintaining a private practice as a licensed psychologist, he also serves on the pastoral staff at Pasadena First Church of the Nazarene. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Brad Strong. This is really cool. I, I haven't really gotten to know you personally, just sort of uh, tertiarily through people through my parents, through people at Rosemead, Um, so I know that you do a lot in both the psychology world and theology world, and mixing the two, and integration. Can you just tell me a little bit about where did you start off? Did you start off in theology? Did you start off in psychology? Did you start off integrating, and and how did you find your way to where you're at now, the uh, integration person at Fuller?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. I will try to do that, try to be succinct. I think um, as I look back on my life, as you're wont to do when you're in your fifth decade of life, um, I, I grew up in a, in a very academic family. My father was a professor um, of mathematics actually. And my, <clears throat> uh, my mother worked at the university where he taught. And so um, integration or interdisciplinarity, I think it, always, it was always a part of my life. Um, you know, we were deeply involved in the church. I grew up in a Christian home um, but I think being around an academic family, uh, my father was very open to issues of science and and it was, it was never like, you know, uh, science, uh, whether that was psychology or biology or chemistry, it was in no way challenging our faith. It was only enriching our faith. So I think I grew up kind of in an interdisciplinarity uh, kind of place. Um, although I did uh, start actually in medicine. I was uh, I, I went to college biochemistry, pre-med. I thought I wanted to be a physician. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, but what I really wanted to do, of course, was study people and um, mm-hmm. organic chemistry and comparative chordae anatomy were just not studying people for me. Uh, and so at that point, I really grappled with, do I want to go into ministry? Do I want to go into um, you know something like psychology? And um, uh, I chose psychology just sort of know kind of like let's see how this goes let's see if this if this scratches a niche and and um again i was sort of taught that you know there may not be one perfect will for your life but god will go with you wherever you go and uh so if you go there it doesn't work out you're not out of god's will you could always switch so uh so i went into psychology i loved it um um and so when i got to the end of my uh undergrad i was applying to some graduate programs and one of my professors and my undergrad said, I know this place called Fuller where I think you'd really like to go because it, it blends these two things, you know, uh, psychology and theology. And um, um, I actually didn't get in the first time I applied to Fuller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had a, a very fruitful and meaningful uh, couple years in youth ministry, um, which was another kind of fleece putting out there and, you know, and seeing, you know, okay, Lord, is this what I'm supposed to do? Sure. Um, yeah. While I was youth pastoring, I was close enough to Fuller that I could take um, some courses in New Testament. Uh, I took those, I really enjoyed them. I demonstrated I could do graduate work. Uh, and then when I applied the following year, I, I got in uh, to the doctoral program in psychology and um, really, really enjoyed that. These, so theology and psych, they've really just been two passions for me. Um, from there, I, I went and actually taught uh, undergrad psych at my alma mater for 10 years. Uh, I took a little bit of a a directional switch. I spent six years at another uh, Christian university um, as the um, uh, university chaplain and vice president for spiritual development. I'm really interested in transformation and change in people, which is what I like about faith and what I like about psychology. And then I guess almost, uh, well, this is my ninth year fuller. So nine years ago, the Dean called and said, hey, we're looking for someone like you uh, that might consider being in this chair of integration, and so I applied and went through a long process and eventually ended up here now in my ninth year and um, it 's just a wonderful it 's a wonderful position it 's a wonderful opportunity that I have i I feel uh, uh, blessed with the work I get to do mm-hmm.
0: Thank you uh, so it seems like the last couple of years you 've been sort of looking at this idea of extended cognition. Um, I have your book here, Enhancing Christian Life, How Extended Cognition Augments Religious Community, that you wrote, wrote with Warren Brown. Um, and when I when I looked at the title and when I heard you speak at um, the Enlightened Conference with my parents, uh, my first impression was, I know a lot of those words, just not in that order. Um, and so do you mind talking a little bit about what extended cognition is, um, you know, is this uh in a new thing is this an old thing um and how how has that sort of come into um your your work life
1: sure sure yeah i'd love to i mean uh to back up just just a step or two um i've always like i said i've always been involved in the church and i do hold a part-time pastoral position uh at my local congregation and so i've always been interested in this intersection not just with psychology and theology but also really practical theology Like, how do we bring psychology into the church in ways that can help enhance Mm -hmm. spiritual formation, for example? Um, And then vice versa, how does the message of the church and theology impact critique and help psychology? I think it's definitely a Mm -hmm. a bi-directional conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But a few years ago, Warren Brown and I wrote a book called The Physical Nature of Christian Life, um, Neuroscience, Psychology, and the Church. And in that book, we first introduced the idea of embodied cognition. Um, embodied cognition is a growing area in the realm of um, philosophy of mind um, and cognitive psychology. It's got a growing body of empirical um, uh, evidence that goes with it. And the idea is essentially, for a long time, we've used the model of the computer to understand the human mind, um, that the, the brain was sort of the hardware uh, end or the body was the hardware, and its job basically was to take in input Uh, And inside is where all the important stuff happened in the software of the mind. And then when that was all sort of dealt with in sort of abstract symbols, then it would go back to the body and it would be outputted into the world. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really a dualistic model. It's um, uh, a disembodied model, interestingly, in a lot of ways. And so what embodied cognition began to demonstrate was that actually it's our minds and our bodies are not separate things. They're one thing, we think with our bodies we feel with our bodies, we believe with our bodies, we act with our bodies. Um, and so uh, it's, it's our actual cognitions, our minds, if you will, um, are a function of the bodies that we have. So one of the thought experience, experiments we like to offer is, you know, if you put a human brain into the body of an elephant, it would have a very different mind than a human brain in a human body. Um, and that's because, again, our bodies, the way we, we are, what we can do, how we interact with the world, uh, really shapes um, our mind and who we are as people. So embodied cognition is the first important step, step in this, that we think with our bodies. Um, now, extended cognition is a continuation of that. C- extended cognition says, you know, we don't only think with our bodies. We actually think with artifacts outside of our body. Um, a really uh, simple example of this is, you know, if I, if I give you, you know, a math problem, like, you know, add 24 and 36 in your head, you're probably going to be able to do that. Um, but if I give you like, a, a, you know, multiply 367 and 529, that's going to be a little more complicated. But if I gave you a paper and pencil, now it becomes quite simple. And so that's an example of extended cognition. The philosophers suggest that in some sense, we think with the use of the paper and pencil. Now that um, is, is a growing, again, body of experimental evidence that demonstrates we use a lot of things. Probably a classic example now would be things like computers and cell phones. We're actually smarter. We, we go beyond our normal human limitations by thinking with these things that are outside of our body. Furthermore, there's uh, uh, growing evidence that we also have a kind of social extended cognition. We think with one another, um, which is why I think uh, things like psychotherapy are so powerful, why the body of Christ is so powerful, that in some sense, again, we're extending beyond our normal human limitations by extending our thinking into something or someone outside of ourselves there's a lot of interesting philosophical debates, you know, is that really thinking or is that just using something? Sure. Um, and and there's, there's a difference there, right? In some ways to be truly extended, something has to be readily available. We have to believe in its ability to help us. And there has to be some sort of feedback loop. Um, and let me give you one more example. You know, there's a difference between when I hang a picture on the weekend with a hammer and nail versus a skilled carpenter when i'm hanging a nail uh i'm very conscious of where my fingers are right sure uh but a skilled carpenter a skilled carpenter doesn't even think about the hammer anymore he has he or she has such expertise now that the mind or the body i'm sorry the brain actually maps the end of the hammer as his or her end of her hand and so the 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 carpenter thinks completely different ways than i think yeah um and so uh the skill, or, or or for something to be truly extended, or what we sometimes of call soft coupling, there has to be an ongoing relationship with it. Otherwise, it's just kind of a use. We can all use things, but for mm-hmm. them to be truly extended, we have to spend time with them. So
0: maybe like a a silly example might be like eating with utensils, where you know we've done it for so long, it's just sort of a fork is just a fork, and we don't even think about. We just go right. through the motions. Versus right. right. As as you were sort of pointing out, something that we might not be as skilled at, we might be a little bit more thoughtful and intentional and sort of observant of of our ourself right. instead of really sort of embodying it.
1: Right. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think of the okay. difference between me with a fork and me with chopsticks, right? It's, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can use sure. chopsticks, but not very well. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, w- when you're describing it, you know, the word that comes to mind is prosthetic, things that we sort of add on. So when does it switch from, because there's probably a gradient of when you become a proficient carpenter or when you become proficient with the tool. So, you know, how do you sort of conceptualize that switch of when it's just something that you use versus something that you embody?
1: Yeah. Well, it's a great question, uh, Gabe. I don't know that there's, uh, I don't know I have a good answer to it, except that I do think it has something to do with expertise. I do, it, we do think it has something to do with just amount of time and intensity that we engage in something. You know, so for example, I'm glad to use the word prosthetic because we have evidence from um, brain mapping now that people with prosthetic limbs, again, the brain maps the end of the prosthetic as the end of their leg in mm-hmm. the motor cortex but it doesn't do that immediately, right? It takes some yeah. time and practice on that leg before it begins to happen. But again, in, in terms of really thinking about extension, what, what the philosophers and the, the scientists will tell us is that whatever that thing is, again, it has to be readily available. We have to have some belief in it and, and that it has to have a kind of feedback loop to it. Um, so we can tell when we're not using it right or like a phone gives us feedback in certain ways, right? A relationship gives us feedback. And if you take relationships for a second, the closer and the more intimate we are with someone, the greater the reciprocity, right? The greater the feedback. Um, That's why therapy again becomes so powerful because the longer we're with the patient, the more likely we're developing that kind of, you know, dialogue together, a language together, uh, what the therapist feels comfortable saying now that he or she didn't feel comfortable saying 10 sessions ago and and things that a friend might not ever say uh, to to the client. So um, there's something definitely about intensity, time spent with, um, and uh, uh, and again that sort of reciprocal feedback loop.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the differences between how that maps with objects versus people? Because with people, I can totally sort of relate to that sense of give and take, where you know there are certain friends that just. I, uh, certain people that that really have impacted my life and that I see the way in which they have sort of shaped different aspects of my life, uh, whereas you know objects it, it's maybe a little bit more abstract to to think about a relationship with an object. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the similarities and differences?
1: Right, right, yeah. And remember, what we're talking about is really cognition. We're really talking about thinking with, not so much having a relationship. But one of the ways to to think about this is that um, sort of gradations of complexity. So a skilled carpenter um, uh, is, we would say, thinking with his hammer or her hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not very complex, right? My guess is that a carpenter can feel when he hits the hammer or hits the nail incorrectly. Uh, he can feel when he's got the holding the hammer, in just the sweet spot, right? Um, because there, there's, there's reverberation, right? And there's, there's the hitting and there's the whole equal and opposite, uh, action mm-hmm. kinds of physics going on there. But now if you talk about a relationship with the human, between human persons, much more complex, right? Because we have, um, eye contact, we have facial expressions, we have body movements, we have tone of voice, we have, um, levels of safety and attachment. We have two histories of people that are coming together in a present moment. So, mm-hmm. um, but, but I think it's important to differentiate between relationship with, that's not really what extended cognition is talking about. It's talking more about enhancing our normal human limitations in our way of thinking or, or, or engaging in cognitive activity. Again, the more we are uh, coupled with these other outside, um, again, either human artifacts or human relationships, um, the more we extend our thinking. And where we get really interested in this is, um, and we may go there, so forgive me if I'm, if I'm jumping ahead, but it's really in the realm of spiritual development. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of t- today, a lot of people, we argue in both books that a lot of people don't really know why they go to church and they feel like they can do t- church kind of on their own. Um, spiritual formation doesn't need that. I think in, the, in Western Christianity, spiritual formation has tended to become inward, individualized and private um it's kind of a really a a dualist almost gnostic uh faith tradition in some ways um and so um that becomes highly problematic because it means that it, it, it it there kind of becomes a hierarchy right uh spirituality inward individual private is better and external bodies are not as good um and i think if you look at um the, the, the theological evidence, you'll see that bodies, in fact, are good. You know, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest example, I think, of uh, the value of the body and the way in which Jesus is resurrected in a body, just as we will all one day be resurrected in a body. And so when spirituality comes to individual, to private, to inward, um, we, we, we lovingly refer to that as puny spirituality. <laughs> There's a kind of spirituality that happens um, but it's not as robust, right? We can go beyond our normal human limitations when we, when we become truly extended into the body of Christ. So that can include the worshiping community. It can include discipleship relationships. It includes a particular way that we extend with scriptures, with doctrine and dogma. Um, there's uh, lots of ways that we actually, and we talked about this in the book, there's lots of ways that we can engage in the practices of faith in um, non-extended ways, and there's ways that we can truly engage in extended ways. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways, our, our books are um, apologetics, again, for the importance of the local Christian community.
0: just um, for all of my listeners who might not have got this stuff in philosophy 101 or didn't take a theology class so you use words like dualistic and gnostic um, and you know I I think that um, for a lot of us in the West, uh, especially Western Christianity, you, we might not know those terms, even though it might be sort of a fish and water sort of effect. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what those terms are and how they have pervaded our our culture?
1: For sure, yeah, and and, and let me situate it within, as you as you're alluding to, Gabe. There's there's a large body of literature, right, um, talking about. Um, and arguing about all these kinds of things because totally. in some ways we have to we have to admit right that these things aren't necessarily provable in mm-hmm. some way. But um, in the Western in Western Christianity, uh, dualism refers to the idea that the human person is made up of two things, a body and a soul. What's interesting is that that's not really, uh, or theologians argue now that's not really the biblical witness. First of all, it's not a Hebraic understanding. The Israelites mm-hmm. didn't think of human persons as a body and a soul. And uh, New Testament scholars now are arguing that we read the New Testament through the lenses of Plato, of Augustine, and even Rene Descartes, who were all influenced by Greek philosophy, uh, which which very much had this idea of there were bodies, and then there was something else that weren't bodies, (laughs) that were the ideal or the perfect, and they were somewhere else, Um, but but we were bodies and souls. And so a lot of then Western Christianity, we and many other authors argue, has focused spiritual formation at the, the level of the soul. We cure the soul, we heal the soul, it's what our, our, our soul is the thing that grows. Um, it's the thing that communicates with God, it's the thing that persists after death, for example. But again, modern theological and biblical scholarship are suggesting that's, that does not have to be an orthodox belief that we in fact are not made up of two things, but we're one thing, we are a body. And what makes us unique is not that something, not that God has put something special inside of us, but what makes us unique is how God chooses to relate to us, which is different than how God chooses to relate to the rest of God's creation, right? Let's say um, at higher levels of organization. God loves all of creation, don't get me wrong, but but he relates to us in in, in a more, powerful and different and kind of unique way. So that scholarship in biblical studies and theology, when we, like Warren Brown and I, as integrators of psychology and theology, what we, what we wanna do is to put that into authentic conversation with the findings of neuroscience. And so what neuroscience is demonstrating is that many of the things that, many of the capacities that were once ascribed to this thing called the soul can be understood as functions of the brain and the body. And so where some secular psychologists, right, or neuroscientists will say, aha, see, you don't need the soul, therefore you don't need religion. Uh, We're saying, well, you don't need a soul, but you still need religion. (laughs) And let us tell you why. And so that's a, a big part of our first book is related to that. We do a little bit of that in the second book, but not quite as much. Um, and like I said, this is not a, a pet project just of ours. There are a number of uh, Christian philosophers, theologians, biblical scholars, neuroscientists who um, are thinking about these things and talking about them. It's not without controversy, though. Let me be clear: there are still people who might refer to themselves as property dualists, which essentially means, again, nope. Humans are made up of two things: a body and a soul.
0: And you know, I think personally, I was you know raised in the church as well, and I think it's not necessarily that, you know, you go to Sunday school and somebody teaches you this is what dualism is. But I think it's some of those like uh, sort of implicit messages, Um, I think, especially with like evangelism and trying to save people's souls um, and like spiritual warfare, how it can be so abstract and, you know, it's sort of this battle that's going on and this is the physical battle and that's the spiritual battle um yeah so yeah yep. no, i think that's helpful yep. to sort of and, and, you know so so that's sort of where i started off and then with all the work that i've done in psychology then there's all these other ideas about how we are you know a lot more integrated than than just these categories yeah yeah yes
1: yes and in fact if i could just say you know um i don't like i don't want to take the word soul away from people mm, totally. <laughs> I, I but but Warren and I will use words like soul or spirit or even the word self as aspects of the whole embodied person. So they're not like reified things. They're somewhere running it around inside of us like little homunculi, right? Um, but, they're, but it's language, and we need language to try to understand things. And so, you know, we could say that person really has a soul or that person has a lot of spirit. Um, you know, we don't mean... There, there is this immaterial, immortal thing that is somehow connected to their body. We just mean there's some essence of this person that's, you know, kind of amazing and, and wonderful and powerful. And, and so, um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. The teaching between the teaching, think of all the songs we sing with words like soul in them and, and things like that. Um, it's just become part of the Western, uh, um, language. And yet, we think there's some potential negatives about that because the soul has hierarchy over the body and so we do save souls we don't save bodies we do seem in the history of western christianity i think, I think there's some changes in that but you know um I, I know missionary groups that would go over and feed people in other countries basically to keep them alive long enough to lead them to jesus and so the real goal wasn't to feed them and care for their whole bodies it was to get them to give intellectual assent to some oppositional beliefs about Christ. And I think that turns off a lot of young people today who are interested in humanitarian issues and who are interested um, in even spiritual kinds of things, right?
0: You know, to some, it might sound like, you know, you're just preaching a social justice or social gospel, but, you know, it, <laughs> what, what you're really getting at is sort of this, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, evangelism and social gospel that, both sort of come together in in, in this
1: place. Right, right, right. I've kind of dropped the word social and I stick with things like biblical justice or Christian justice. Mm -hmm. um, There's so many connotations and yeah. Exactly, exactly. But if I can just say too, Gabe, I mean, I think that's that's not a dualism. Mm -hmm. If if we really are bodies, then what we see in Jesus, in fact, is many times he's, the word used for saving is also the the word used for curing or healing. Mm And so sometimes Jesus forgives sins and then cures a body. And sometimes he cures a body and then he forgives sins. And so it's really interesting, you know, and we know that when Jesus cures someone, he reinstates them within the Christian community or the, the Judaic community again, right? Because they were once unclean and they couldn't worship, but now they can. Yeah, Go and show so yourself to the priest. <laughs> <stuff>. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
0: so, you know, I think we've set a pretty good foundation. And so if we go along with this theory, uh um, the way that you're describing it sounds like it touches every part of daily living. I mean, how can you not go through a day without using or, or sort of extending yourself in some way? I mean, uh, I can't think of, <laughs> like you mentioned computers, there, there's so many ways in which we just do this on a daily basis right. and we don't even think about it. Um, but you know, I think the, right. the thing that we're both salivating at is this idea of spiritual development. So can you talk a little bit about yeah what that looks like and how you have sort of taken a look at, at how do we develop spiritually as humans?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a great, great question. So if, if we are kind of dualists, if we're made up of two things and, and the real action of spiritual formation is somewhere inside of me, then the kinds of practices we engage in and especially the ways that we measure our spiritual flourishing we argue, tend to be based on a kind of inward affective experience. We hear people say all the time, I feel close to God, or I don't feel close to God, right? Um, but we think, again, along with a number of theologians and biblical scholars, that that's not really how one ought to measure one's spiritual flourishing. We really ought to measure one's spiritual flourishing in terms of fruits of the spirit, which um, are, some of those are kind of like affective terms, right? Patience, but you can't have patience apart from an, a relationship with someone outside of yourself or patience with your computer or whatever, right? So these are all very embodied kinds of things. So our argument then is that for spiritual formation to be really extended, um, we need to engage in embodied ways with, like I said, people in the church, with the worship, with our holy texts, with our doctrine, our theology, in such a way that it moves us toward enacted cognition that thinking really is for action. That's another part of, um, of, of, extended cognition is enacted cognition. And so the way to measure our spiritual flourishing is not how do we feel inside? I mean, mother Teresa demonstrated this right in her the book that came out after her death when all her letters demonstrated that she didn't feel close to, to God. Um, but she kept finding Jesus in the sick and dying, you know, on the streets of India. Yeah. And so, um, we need to engage in practices uh, in ways that move us towards uh, looking and acting and sounding and smelling like Jesus. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and that's the way we measure our flourishing, whether we feel it or not. And we know that psychology has shown us that sometimes our feelings change and that leads to behaviors. Sometimes our behaviors are what change our feelings and our thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a bi-directional. It can happen in both directions. And we argue that the Western church for some time now has focused too much on an inward change in hopes that it would move outward. And I think history has demonstrated perhaps that that's not worked as well as we we hoped it would. What we end up having is a lot of insular private religious groups who spend a lot of time identifying who's not part of them rather than going out and finding where God's at work in the world and joining in. So when we, so example, so when I read scripture, and I read scripture by myself every morning, um, when I do that, I do it in a particular kind of mindset. And I think, so I think the way we think is in fact important. So for example, I read the daily lectionary, and I know that other brothers and sisters around the world are also reading this. There's something powerful about that, right? And I read it in a way that I know, or I expect that God is going to use that to move me out into the world. And in fact, if you read the great spiritual writers, um, well, there's so many, but, but just take Thomas Merton, for example, right? He's someone a lot of people might know. Thomas Merton will say pretty clearly, I think he says it in the New Seeds of Contemplation if you're doing this just to sort of feel good about yourself, you've missed the boat. Now, that's a real rough translation of what Merton says. But he'll say it's, you know, people like Henry Noun say the same thing you go inward but only so that you can go outward if you don't go outward it's a false it's idolatry so i read these scriptures i'm running in in my mind i can't help but run offline simulations of myself in these stories it creates imagination inside of me i i can't help but imagine oh i'm that character or maybe what if i was like jesus in this situation or what if i and and that fuels my imagination as a person in the world good preaching does that Hearing other people read scripture together does that because people emphasize words and phrases differently than I would. So I hear new things I didn't hear before. Um, Extending myself into the doctrine and the theology of my church helps me grapple with big questions that I'm not smart enough to think about on my own. So all of that moves me along. Very different, Gabe, than if I think I can just go hiking on Sunday and spend time in the wilderness and experience some sort of transcendent otherness of the creator. I think you can experience a transcendence of the, other, uh, you know, of the creator, but that's not so much a path. That's an experience, and we as human beings, we need a path. We need uh, a, a way. Jesus was the way, right? The early Christians were called the way, um, and so it's just, I just think it's, it's we have to, as people of faith, Be part of some sort of Christian community. I know that the church has hurt a lot of people. A lot of young people are understandably anxious and worried about the church. Especially what's all going on in the political world that we're in in the United States right now. I totally get that. And so my comment is uh, we'll find a Christian community. Maybe it's not called church. (laughs) Um, Maybe you don't like that word. Um, There's some there's some advantages to be part of a historic church. Don't get me wrong. Um, but find a place where there are other people that you can extend yourself into, and you become a better Christian because of those people.
0: I, you know, I, I like sort of these e-words that you're using: embodied cognition, extended cognition, expect, uh, was it uh, enacted cognition? I'm guessing that was intentional because it's very alliterative. Um, Yes, they're the ease of cognition. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, what's going on in my mind, you know, I'm thinking, okay, Dr. Strawn, that sounds all fine and dandy. um, But when I think about the rubber meeting the road um, and and sort of that enacted piece, um, you know, I, I think that's where the hiccup comes for, or the hangup comes for me of, you know, I like that individual feeling. I like that, you know, I like that sort of private spirituality that nobody has to see. Uh, and, and maybe I'm a little too revealing right now, but uh, you know, it's it's hard <laughs> to it. go out and do the enacted stuff that you're yeah. talking about. Um, and so, you know, where do you feel like that that push or that motivation comes to get over that hump?
1: Yeah. Well, so that brings me to the, the fourth E, uh, believe it or not. So there's, in, there's, there's, this wasn't planned. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, well, this is, I mean, this is what the cognitive, this is the cognitive people. Yeah. I didn't mean to do it, but it's actually, it's, it's actually in the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, embodied, embedded, extended, and enacted. Mm-hmm. And I know we haven't talked so much about embodied or embedded, mm-hmm. but this again is why the church is so important is because the, there's lots of things that I don't want to do on my own. But when a brother or sister in Christ says, "Hey, come with me,"
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm much more likely to do it. Yeah. you know, be part of this Bible study. You know, c- come and come and join this. You know, we know you like to sing. Come and sing with us in this worship team. Mm-hmm. Hey, I heard you play the. I heard you play the guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, we could really use some of the strum on Wednesday night. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But um, the embeddedness is so essential. Um, embeddedness you know, in culture, I mean, we're embedded in so many different things, right? Our racial embeddedness are our, our, our here in the U.S., a certain kind of U.S., Midwest, and East Coast. I mean, there's all sorts of things, right? Um, but I think when it comes to getting over that hump, um, instead of trying to kind of go for the old, you know, American myth of the hero, I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, I need other people to pull me up by my bootstraps. Mm. I really need to grapple with what it means to be a dependent rational animal. That's a phrase from Alistair McIntyre, another great um, Christian philosopher. Um, I I think, but I only am able to make rational moral um, decisions because I'm embedded in a kind of apprenticeship with other people who are ahead of me and alongside of me and sometimes behind me who I get to help as well. Um, and it's not a hierarchical thing because we're all on this continuum and we can move back and forth, right? Sometimes I'm leading and sometimes I'm following. Um, but I have friends in my life I can point to who I would say, undoubtedly, I'm a better follower of Jesus because of so-and-so. Because so-and-so modeled something for me, right? We know the brain is is wired to imitate, right? Um, mirror neurons and all that good stuff. So when I, ha- when I spend time the volitional part here is I've got to make choices to be with people <laughs> who, are, who are further along in the journey than I am. So there's some volitional piece here, right? I can't get away from that. We have free will, I think, uh, as humans. But if I can make some choices to put myself in embedded context um, where others are going to pull me, that becomes really powerful. Even to the point, Gabe, where sometimes I'll say, when I can't pray, I need others to pray. When I can't believe, I need others to believe. You know, when I have no faith, I rely on the faith of my brothers and sisters in Christ because I'm going to have my day, you know, um, and I'm thankful for Thomas that he had the other disciples who said, come and see, come and see, you know, yeah. and of course, Thomas didn't get rebuked for doubting. Um, we all relate to Thomas, you know, but thankful for those other disciples who pulled me along and said, come and see.
0: And, you know, I, I've definitely had those types of people who I've, I've reached out to and, you know. Whether they knew it or not, or want to or not, they became mentors to me. <laughs> um, exactly. And so I can think about those intentional ways. Um, but when you were describing sort of that, you know, pulling along for the ride, you know, the the first person that came to life uh, so get, came to mind was my wife, um, and, yeah. and and not in a in a bad way at all. But you know, there are certain things that we have preferences for. There's certain things that uh, she wants to do that I don't, and certain things that I want to do that she doesn't, and you know, we're married and we just sort of uh, pull each other along. Uh, And so it sounds like it's not just this intentional thing, but it sounds like it can also be sort of the spontaneous things.
1: Exactly, exactly. And this is what's interesting is that not all extension is good, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can extend yourself into a loving relationship with a spouse who can make you a better person, more well-rounded, you know, can help take off the edges of whatever it is you struggle with. But you could also extend yourself into a crime family, for example. <laughs> you could extend yourself into you know, um, other stories, other narratives um, that, that are, are, are damaging. And so it's not um, – extension doesn't equal good. Um, and your point is so important because, because extension's happening in ways we don't often think about. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to be careful about the embedded context that we allow ourselves to to be in. And I think this is a big problem for Christians in the United States right now: is syncretism. We've we've confused nationalism with Christianity, and they're not the same thing. Um, and we haven't done it because someone taught us that. Like you were saying earlier, there's all these just thousands of subtle messages, right? And we just take them in. It's fish and watery.
0: say that okay you know we we take what we've been talking about and we found a community um you know my guess is that's just the beginning <laughs> um you know once we find that community it's very easy to get complacent you know especially when everybody sort of knows each other and after you sort of build up this history and you know not to disparage that in way that's a great place to be but you know how do you sort of keep pushing the envelope or 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 I don't even know if I should be using that term, but you know, is is it just this sort of uh, amorphous growth that just sort of happens, or is there certain sort of I use a theology word, telos, that we're sort of headed towards?
1: Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Well, I really think, and we talk about this in in this book, is how important it is. Oh, so so we extend ourselves into also what are called a mental institutions now. In our world of psychology, we don't mean institutions. The loaded, loaded term. The <laughs> loaded term. Um, what, what, what authors mean is they mean something like the, uh, the law. The law is a mental institution that has been developed over years and years and years and years, and years right? Mm-hmm. So no one knows all the law. Um, but a lawyer, an individual lawyer, when needed to, knows how to go and extend themselves into this thing called the law to find the answers for what they're looking for. In a similar way, the body of Christ has to extend itself into the mental institution of the right narrative. And for us, we we refer to that as the narrative of the kingdom of God or the narrative of the reign of God, if you prefer that term. Mm -hmm. Um, Many, many Christian churches, I, I think in the West and around the world, I suppose, we have at times got ourselves not situated in the right narrative. And we can go back to, you know, Germany and the Nazis. That's a popular one to go back to. But we see places where the Christian church has given up its narrative and has adopted the nationalistic narrative of the world around it. So one, one thing that's so important is we have to stay deeply rooted in the narrative. Now, I know that we interpret the narrative and there's all sorts of challenges there, right? But again, that's why more people together hopefully leads to something better. The second thing I would say is that every system needs a skeptic. Every system needs a prophet. Yeah. Um, no no one signs up to be a prophet. And anyone who says, I'm the prophet, beware of them. <laughs> uh, but, but usually, if we've been part of a system, we can identify those people. They're the people who are always asking the tough questions, you know, like your podcast here, I think. Um, you know, well, why, do, why are we doing that? How does that fit with the narrative? Explain to me why we would spend $10,000 on that, church, and not $10,000 over here. Let's just have a conversation about it, right? And so um, I think every, so in some ways, right, ex, extension into a community of faith is, is, has a lot of overlap with systems theory mm-hmm. and that systems strive for homeostasis, right? They strive to be the same, as you mentioned, that could lead to deadness. Um, but true systems are um, self, um, uh, self-reorganizing, like, like human beings are self-organizing. So when a crisis comes from the outside, there's the opportunity for the system to reorganize itself to higher levels of functioning. Now, sometimes we don't do that. <laughs> we just push away and we other, and we say, we're not going to deal with that, right? Take a church, for example, that started out, uh, it was a white neighborhood. And over time the neighborhood changes and now it's just a commuter church and it gets smaller and smaller, fewer, fewer white people, and they don't do anything to reach out to the surrounding community around them. They're resisting change. They need a skeptic. They need to be deeply, in the narrative in such a way that someone says wait a second i thought we were supposed to love our neighbor and our neighbors don't look anything like us you know um so we there's a certain level of um hope and there's a certain level of trust and recognition that the spirit of god right we're not pushing the spirit out of any of this by the way the spirit's always involved Um, we have a certain level of faith that the spirit is going to continue to do what the spirit does, going to raise up the skeptics, going to raise up the uncomfortable questions are going to help us when we get off our narrative. Um, And, you know, again, we, we, we can thwart the spirit clearly as a people. Um, But if we're really striving, if we're really trying, if we're deeply extended, uh, we think we've got a better shot to resist some of those pull.
0: And, you know, I, I can think of, you know, maybe some, Weariness or some sort of fears in terms of if there is this constant growth, then then where does tradition come in? You know that if we are so malleable and so open to this process of you know feedback and, and sort of uh, continually pushing ourselves, um, what about sort of the, the the doctrines that we hold to? You know, how do we protect those? You know, how how do we sort of conserve those?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm a big tradition fan. I think tradition is really important. And I think that um, a lot of our ethical conundrums, especially between the church and the, and the world, if you say, or people outside the church, um, a lot of our troubles there is because we're arguing our presuppositions. We're not really owning our traditions, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're arguing past each other in uncomfortable ways. Um, so I think tradition is really important because it gives us a place to stand. And it gives us a place to say, here's the reason why we say this, right? But you and I know, and history points out, that traditions change, and they need to change. Uh, Phyllis Tickle, who's a great spiritual and religious writer, says every 500 years or so, the church has a garage sale. Um, and you can, <laughs> you can see it in the Great Schism. You can see it in the Reformation. And we're really coming up into this next 500 years. we we're, <laughs> um, we're due. We're due for a new garage sale. And in <laughs> those moments, right, you get rid of what you no longer need. You hold what's precious to you. Um, and that's a really difficult, challenging um, thing, Gabe. And I think, you know, if I can speak candidly, I think that the evangelical church is struggling with this mightily around LGBTQ plus issues, for example. I think the church is struggling mightily with what with white supremacy and issues of racial justice. Um, and I know lots of people, you know, will newly really tune me out probably for saying that, but I don't care because I think it's true. Um, You've got the mic. I, I think these are... T- okay <laughs> i think these are two examples where our tradition has to be challenged and i'm not saying where we're going to end up exactly but i think it has to be challenged and and when tradition um when tradition is challenged it's always painful right it's always hard um but hopefully we can we can rise to new levels of organization while we still hold on to those central reign of god kinds of issues what did jesus teach what did jesus exhibit in his life and death and resurrection Can we somehow, as a body of Christ, again, think about embodied cognition. I just love Paul's language of the body of Christ. Can we as the body of Christ um, demonstrate that to the world?
0: So I don't want to take on the mantle of profit in any way, but when you said uh, (laughs) the the garage sale, what came to mind is COVID. I mean, this has been sort of a, a cultural upheaval and changing the way that we do a lot of things. And you, you started uh, working through this topic long before COVID came along. Um, how do you think that this idea of extended, embodied, embedded, uh, enacted cognition sort of plays out in this new terrain that we have, uh, especially when the uh, treatment is within community that that's been so disrupted?
1: yeah yeah no there's lots of things um i i been grappling and thinking as we all have right about about the impact of this pandemic on us i think it definitely shows the power of relationships um i think some you know there's a lot of people who say well i don't want to do that and i don't want to wear a mask and i don't want to i'm not going to social isolate and all that um on the one hand i know that gets framed as for political reasons sometimes but 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 the, the more optimistic part of me says that's a desire for human embodied relationships.
0: Great <laughs> um, reframe.
1: It's not entirely true. Right? I'm not naive about that, but I do think what we're seeing is um, a strong desire to be together. Yeah. And currently right now we, all we can do is extend ourselves. Thankfully we have things like zoom and Skype and, you know, I'm seeing all my, my clinical patients right now on on zoom uh, or various platforms. And um it's not my favorite but it's better than nothing and we're finding a way to make it work Mm -hmm. um and so i'm thankful that we can extend ourselves into that in in kind of unique sorts of ways um but i do think it's it's pointing out uh how powerful the actual face-to-face is um you know what that looks like i think this has really impacted churches you know quite a bit again going back to churches um my guess is that when we when we come back to embodied congregational experiences, they're gonna look different probably. Um, you know, I don't know what that's gonna look like exactly. Um, but I wonder too if 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 just maybe, maybe what Christians might be learning is the church isn't a building. Um, the church is the people of, of God uh embedded in the world around them. Now so again I think it's really important to come back together as a worshiping community. Um, but much of many of us, and myself included, in times has gotten the cart before the horse, and so church was what I did on Sunday when I went to that building. Yeah, um, not what I did on, you know, Tuesday at work, or not what I did in the, in gr- in the grocery line, um, you know. Uh, and I and I I my hope is that that might be something we're learning is that to actually further extend the concept of church. Uh, out into the world. I don't do it by myself. If I'm being the church in the grocery line, I'm doing it only because I got all these people in my head, right? All these models and imitations and I have a narrative and I have the skeptics and I have the tradition and all of that's playing inside of my head. I'm never alone, Gabe, is what I'm saying. Um, but I can only be, I can only do that because I've been extended uh, in particular kinds of ways.
0: And so, you know, it's kind of a, a fun image to to picture of you in the grocery line with all these people sort of sitting on your shoulder or things like that, you know. I I wonder, you know, since since you've immersed yourself in this research, you know, how has this changed the way that you approach life? Because I can imagine... if I I had all these terms sort of floating around my head, I'd be asking myself, am I enacting right now? Am I embedded right now? Like, (laughs) am I embodied right now? Like, you know, do you overanalyze yourself or or how do you sort of uh, (laughs) uh, think differently now that you've sort of looked at all this?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I I think there's a number of ways. I mean, as you mentioned, we're always extending in some ways, right? sometimes that's more toward use than it is true extension. Um, and so we're not getting the full, another term we use is supersizing. Mm-hmm. Supersizing the mind is a term from Andy philosophers. Uh, uh, philosopher. Um, so sometimes we're using others or we're using artifacts in a way that it's not really supersizing our mind, but some, sometimes we are again, depending on how we do it. I would say that um, I don't overanalyze it, but, but one of the ways I think that it has all, all this work in the last brief, I don't know, 10 years or something particularly, um, has made me a lot more cognizant of the actual physical human body. Mm-hmm. And so, um, for example, as a clinician, um, I think prior to this, I, I thought in kind of disembodied mind ways with my clients. Mm-hmm. you know, um, it was a lot more about thinking or feeling even in the mind. Um, but now I'm much more prone to ask questions about where the client is feeling something in their body um, or what I'm noticing in their body, paying attention to my own body more, because I think there's right, this kind of right brain to right brain hemisphere connection that uh, neuroscientists have been talking about. I think there's that piece. Again, also, I think in, in the body of Christ, I become more aware of that. Um, can you write a sermon or can you write a song that's more embodied, uh, you know, that, that challenges people to do something with their body, not just to think new thoughts. Um, You know, in fact, I I noticed in my teaching at Fuller with my graduate students, um, they want a lot more, they want less tell me and more show me, which I think is a lot more embodied, right? So they want me to tell them my story, share my cases, demonstrate my affect, you know, just like. Be real, yeah. <laughs> um, rather than some sort of intellectual exercise. Again. Um, and I think that's one of the that's one of the gifts of the younger generation, uh, uh, Gen Z, maybe particularly, seem very very embodied to me. Um, every generation has its good and its trouble, right? Um, but those are some ways I think I think I've become uh, much more interested, yeah, in the body, and much more interested in practices. Um, what are the kind of daily liturgies that we can engage in that, that are embodied that actually will shape us toward a telos? Like you said, like the end goal. What's the end goal? And so if I'm engaging in a, in a liturgy whose goal is not image of Jesus, but is consumer capitalist, then I need to think about switching liturgies, right? Again, I'm sort of in the, as the fish, I'm in the dirty water, and I need to get in the better water so that my telos, my ultimate goal is going in the right direction that's 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 how that's impacted me I think as a professor clinically and spiritually
0: It's interesting to think about how you know as you're alluding to this younger generation is sort of into this what I might say sort of radical authenticity <laughs> just you know show me that's show right. me who you are you know drop the facade yeah. transparency yeah yeah. Um, And, you know, I can, you know, going back to dualism, you know, I think there's something very safe about compartmentalizing these different parts where you can sort of choose, pick and choose sort of what you want to show to other people and within this embodied sort of, you know, I sort of think of these, uh, this enmeshing almost of of, of you and the other people, you and your community. You know, I can't imagine not being vulnerable within that kind of. I think you'd be hard pressed to try to be vulnerable in a community that looks like that. Um, You know, what do you think are the are the consequences for sort of pressing into this embodied cognition? Because on the one hand, you know that that can you know, if you're vulnerable, then you're vulnerable, you know, you're open for, for hurts or, or damage. But on the other right. hand, what we're also sort of hoping for is this sense of healing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've been involved in a lot of groups and churches and I, and, and as you know, I mean, group therapy is a really powerful um, intervention for people, particularly when they're grappling with sort of their personal relationship challenges like that, that's sort of their core issue. Um, I'm always hopeful the church could step into that realm in some way, Mm -hmm. but as you said, people become really vulnerable and then they're open and then they get hurt, um, which sometimes perpetuates a really negative cycle. And um, so I think we have to do a better job of sort of training lay people. And this is where again, I'm really interested in psychology giving itself to the church. Uh, not in ways the church doesn 't want or need because yeah. <laughs> that 's arrogant on our side, <laughs> but I think um, you know even even the kinds of things you know that your parents are doing are so amazing because it 's saying first we 're caring about the church um, and we also think that some people out there have some things that could help mm-hmm. <laughs> right so it 's not one trumping the other it's really it 's really a dialogue um So I've been involved in groups where, you know, we've tried to be intimate, we've tried to be transparent, we've tried to be emotionally naked. Um, Sometimes it works, other times it doesn't work. People leave, people get hurt, people get angry. Um, And yet that's kind of it, right? That's kind of even how group therapy goes. And so what I think we have to work on is, is, is coming back. Another thing we do talk about in the book is the importance of attachment. You know, when you have a secure attachment, you can weather a lot of bumps and bruises. And um, we, I don't think we have very secure attachment with one another in our church. I think it's a place where we could learn, we could earn secure attachment. But that means, again, we have to spend time together. And Dave, we say in both books, we don't spend enough time together as the body of Christ. You know, in even America, most COVID. people will say they're a regular church. Yeah, well, especially, yeah. Mm-hmm. But even before that, I mean, people would, would say in surveys that they were a regular attender to a particular church because they went once a month. Mm-hmm. That's not forming you. That's not shaping you. You know, who shapes us? Our families, our friends, television, media, things we're spending countless hours with and extending ourselves into, right? And so um, I think it's only by spending more time in a Christian community that we can move toward attachment, secure attachment, and then we're going to be able to deal with some of these bumps and bruises of what it really means to be transparent and vulnerable. But it's just going to be messy, and that's what I tell my students. Therapy is messy. Relationships are messy. Marriage is messy. Parenting is messy. Anything worth doing, I think, is going to be messy at some point. Yeah. So take heart. It's not. It's not for the faint of heart. <laughs>
0: <laughs> totally. Um, one of the things that you said uh, a little while back is, you know, finding a community. Finding a community that you, even if it's um, not necessarily, you know, called a church, but finding some people that you can sort of Um, really extend into, Um, you know, what about for those people who are at a church and, and, you know, they're committed to it for some reason, but they're listening to this podcast and thinking, I don't know who to extend into, or, you know, I I don't want to just leave. Um, There's reasons why I'm here, but also I don't feel like I'm getting this sort of life, life sort of giving, give and take with, with the people around me.
1: Right. 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 Yeah. Lovely question. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say is, well, you know, make sure you're looking and you're overturning every stone. Mm -hmm. One of the great ways to get in, um, extended is to get involved in service. Is your church doing anything in the way of service? you'll develop relationships quickly when you serve with other people. Again, another beautiful way, right. To, to, uh, flourish spiritually is to do something with your body. And so one of the things I say to people is, well, where are you serving? Are you serving the church? And are you serving some greater thing outside of the church? So that's one little hint. Another is obviously to talk to leadership in the church and say, hey, I want to be discipled by someone, or I'd like to help start a ministry, or I'd like to be part of a small group. Do you have any things like this? Um, I will say, and I say this to my students too, Gabe, sometimes we have to leave a Christian community. Um, Sometimes we've been injured, wounded, um, we know some of the church and some people in the church have done horrific things to one another. And so um, there is a culpability. There's a responsibility that the church needs to carry and be responsible for. And so sometimes we have to leave a community and, um, and that's okay. You know, um, if you do though, go to another one, try another one on, don't just wander aimlessly, you know, um, forever, like pain or whatever, you know, um, find, find a place and, and, um, and again, try, don't give up hope. But, but students will always say to me, like, oh, this sounds great. This church, Dr. Strong, where is this church? Um, and I always say, you have to make it. You have to, you have to become committed to trying to make this, this Christian community. I will say too, if I can just say, I found this in some unexpected places as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been part of some um, uh, psychological communities of Christians that have become um, uh, really powerful places of not only growing as a professional psychologist, but as a person of faith. You know, um, Earl Bland, who you're having on your your podcast later this week, is a close friend of mine. We've been involved in an organization for many years now. Um, Earl makes me a better uh, believer, I would say. He makes me a better psychologist. I hope I do the same for him. Um, In that community, um, from that community, we've seen people go through divorces. We've we've supported people if they had six children. Um, as they've moved faith communities, um, we've helped them as they become uh, uh, you know things have emerged like writing and new practices and all sorts of amazing fun things have happened so um, sometimes we we find them in these adjunctive places as well but, um, but in those situations there was still a commonality we were still gathered around the fact that you know we love psychology particularly psychoanalysis but we also loved Christian faith <laughs> and those, those two narratives we brought together.
0: Um, all of these things that we've been talking today, you know, the, the phrase that comes to mind is, you know, Christian unity of, of how these things can be really unifying. Um, and, you know, I think that we've been talking in, in a lot of practical ways, but I think one sort of, you know, maybe more pie in the sky sort of thing is, when uh, Jesus prays, you know, let them all be one as as we are one. And maybe this idea of already not yet, where where Jesus has come and and instituted, you know, the church and, and, you know, we're saved and we're sort of working towards this ultimate Kingdom of God. Um, But at the same time, you know, we, we do live in this broken sort of fragmented world where people do get hurt and people do open themselves up and You know, maybe people do have to leave a community for a time or, or seek out a different one. So, you know, what do you think is Our hope of unity this side of heaven, heaven? And, and what do you think is our, our uh, ultimate hope of, of what, when the kingdom of God sort of arrives?
1: Yeah, I always tell my students that um, my, my clinical psych students that it's really important that they know their their what for why they do their work as clinicians, for example. And and I will say to them, my what goes something like this. Um, I get to partic- participate with God in God's eschatological work in the world. There's another big theological <laughs> term, right? Yeah. Um, but what I mean by that is um, essentially um, helping or not helping, but but companioning with the spirit, right? Of God, um, to help creation return to its original intention. So people come to us in psychotherapy or they come broke into the church and, you know, if we boil it all down, this is overly simplified Gabe, but people are having trouble both loving and being loved. Right. And so in some ways, if my therapy helps them accept a the love more, and become better lovers in the world, then I'm participating in God's eschatological work in the now and not yet kingdom, as you said. So we're never gonna fully get there. Um, I don't have to lead my patients to Christ, even though I think that that's a wonderful way to live. Because first of all, you know, I choose to do this as a professional with certain guilds and all that, and that's not ethical. Um, I could do that more as a pastor. Um, but I do think that even when I'm not leading someone to Christ, I'm leading them towards Christ. I'm leading them towards what they were intended to be. Um, what God created them to be lovers of self, other, and and eventually maybe the transcendent God. So, but it's limited, as you said, right. We got to keep, I think we have to keep the high and mighty in mind. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't want to lose that because that gives us hope. Um, and I think that's also why we have to be people of the resurrection, Mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, that's going to happen again, uh, we, we ascribe to as people of faith. And Jesus is going to come again, and we're going to be resurrected um, in bodies. And um, I think we're all going to be surprised who's there, uh, but we're going to be excited <laughs> about it. Um, and so um, we're trying to help create God's shalom, God's peace, God's love, God's, you know, just like when Jesus stands up in the temple and reads from Isaiah to, to release the captive and to bring hope to the poor and the oppressed. Um, that's all we're asked to do, uh, uh, God really does the work and God has the final say, so we don't have to be overly burdened by it, but we get to participate. And that's, to me, that's one of the amazing things about the way God chooses to relate to humans, mm-hmm. is he relates to us as, as partners, as companions. Um, and, um, and anyone who's been, who's ever companioned with God, I think it would say, man, it, it can be hard. It can be tough. It's not without pain, but there's nothing that's more joyous than the companioning with the Spirit. All right.
0: Well, we've covered a lot of ground in our conversation today. I don't know what could possibly be in that book that you wrote that we <laughs> haven't talked about, but do you mind just sort of giving uh, like a little plug for for this book, Enhancing Christian Life, How Extended sure. Cognition Augments Religious Communities uh, for People Who Might Be Interested?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, your questions have been great, and you're right. We've covered a lot of what's in the book. I think um, uh, we do, obviously, you know, in greater detail, um, explore these kinds of four E's of cognition, Mm -hmm. uh, especially extended. Um, There's a whole chapter where we talk about modern Christian spirituality in the United States, which I think people will find helpful Mm -hmm. um, and maybe reorienting themselves. Oh, wow, I have kind of fallen into that inward individual private, kind of spirituality Mm -hmm. Um, and we we make suggestions and then throughout the book how we move into a more embodied enacted extended and embedded spiritual faith which is which we believe supersizes our faith we believe that we become deeper and and um uh, stronger and more mature maybe is the best word to say that followers of jesus uh when we again extend ourselves not only into one another in the body but again extend ourselves in the right way into scripture and in the right way into worship and in the, in the right way into spiritual practices. Um, so, you know, we give you some of that philosophical stuff that you need, I think, hopefully in a way that's accessible. We aimed it at sort of, you know, bright lay people, uh, uh, people in school as well, pastors. We, we tried to aim it so it hit kind of a broad range of people, uh, but also with some real practical, kinds of things to think about toward the end uh, in terms of, of the body of Christ. And, um, you know, we got, um, we have some some helpful examples, I think, uh, as well. So, yeah, thank you so much for uh, letting me plug it. Yeah,
0: thank you. And, um, you know, I must say, you know, I- Thank you for being a part of my extended cognition now. You know, I think when I go to the grocery store, I'm going to have a little bread straw on my shoulder. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you for tuning in to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. Still have questions? Oh, good. I was afraid we answered them all. For more information about the HQNA podcast, visit drgabelo.com. That's D R G A B E L L W E.com. Additional educational materials recommended by my guests can be found in the podcast tab. And for the updates, news, and behind the scenes, follow HQNA podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HQNA P O D. HQNA podcast is independently produced by Gabriel Lowe. Music is Cocktail Fun by Stock Music 331 found on Pond5. And logo design is by Kenny Lowe. Stay tuned for new episodes released each Wednesday. And thank you for joining me on the journey of no answers.